Okay, so we are now going to get into the chapter, Into Action, which is steps 5 through 11. So the pace is really going to pick up now as we're going through this. So the way the big book is presented is we make this inventory in step 4, and then in one day we do 5, 6, 7, and 8. Now, I think one of the prejudices I had was when you see the steps on the wall, you think each one has equal importance and should take equal amount of time, which I think is why a lot of step groups have 12 steps, 12 months, 12 steps, 12 weeks. But the way the big book is really set up is that five, six, seven, eight are all done in one day. So we're gonna start on page six, and I mean on chapter six, page 72. And I'm just gonna kinda cherry pick certain stuff out of here because one of the wonderful things is there's a couple pages in here we don't really need. And what I mean by that is the assumption when they wrote this book is that somebody from Kansas was going to call them from New York and work this um, book by themselves. And they weren't going to have access to recovered people. So part of this chapter is going to tell you how to find someone to give your fifth step to. And gratefully today we have a fellowship that we can ask. Um, we have sponsors, we have fellowships, people that we can ask to do that. And if you don't feel comfortable with anyone in your fellowship, Go to AA, ask an AA person to take your um, fellow, take your, your um, fist up, because it is something specific. You know, it's not about understanding your past. This is about finding freedom from your past. So there, you want to have someone who understands the 12-step process to take your fist up, okay? So that having made our personal inventory, what shall we do about it? We've been trying to get a new attitude, step two, a new relationship with our creator, step three, and to discover the obstacles in our past, step four. We have admitted certain defects, and we have ascertained in a rough way what the trouble is. We have put our finger on the weak items in our personal inventory. So I like that idea in a rough way, and I never heard this term until I heard someone else talk about it, but there's a thing called rough plumbing, and what that means is that someone's just going to get you to have access to water, you know, in, in a room. It's just the ears, I don't know what the word is, but when they do fine-tuned plumbing, let's say, that's when you get the vanity and the toilet, finished, finished plumbing. So the roughness is just getting access to the water. So that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to get access. So we're not trying to figure out our whole entire life. We're trying in a rough way to figure out what our problem is. And then we're going to fine-tune that once we get through the inventory process of 4 through 9 and start implementing it in 10 and 11. The next paragraph. This is perhaps difficult, especially discussing our defects with another person. We think we have done well enough in admitting these things to ourselves. There is no doubt about it. In actual practice, we usually find a solitary self-appraisal insufficient. This is really important. Because I, and I, I think of it this way, solitary self-appraisal. If I want to sell my house, I get a third-party appraiser. Because what happens is I have, I have a lot of emotional attachment to my house. I have two dogs, and I have hardwood, original hardwood floors from the 1920s, and they're like crap from all the dogs. I don't care. Because I love my dogs, and that's just what happens when you live with dogs. But someone comes into my house, all they know is I have crappy hardwoods. Now, if you in your house have on your wall a bunch of scratches saying how tall your kids were each year, that's sentimental to you. But all someone sees when they come in your house is you have scratches on your wall. So you need someone to come in and say, okay, whatever you feel about your house, you have three bedrooms, two baths, 
you live in this school district, you have this much square footage, your property is this big, this is how much you can sell your house for. And that's why it's so essential to not just stop in your fourth step and think you're done. You need someone else involved in that. That is why when we get to step 10, it's gonna tell us we have to involve it. And for me, it all goes back to the doctor's opinion when we learn we cannot differentiate the true from the false. Our alcoholic life is the only normal one. I have to make sure that I don't allow that disease thinking to come back, and I'm not gonna see that. I can see it for you, because I can be objective about your life. I can't be objective about my life. Many of us thought it necessary to go much further. We'll be more reconciled to discussing ourselves with another person when we see good reasons why we should do so. The best reason first. Here's another warning. If we skip this vital step, you may not overcome drinking. Time after time, newcomers have tried to keep to themselves certain facts about their lives. So I think to myself too, like, you know, I thought AA and I thought OA was about stop drinking, stop eating. You never, I've tried to find it. I don't ever see this book telling me to stop drinking. What I tell this, what I hear this book saying is you're going to drink, you're going to drink, you're going to drink, unless you have a spiritual experience. So once again, we're being told if we don't do this work, we're going to drink, we're going to eat. Trying to avoid these humbling experiences, they have turned to easier methods. Invariably, they got drunk. Having persevered with the rest of the program, they wondered why they fell. We think the reason is they never completed their house cleaning. Once again, house cleaning is four through nine, not just four. They took inventory, all right, but they have hung on to some of the worst items in stock. They only thought they lost their egoism and fear. They only thought they had humbled themselves, but they had not learned enough of humility, fearlessness, and honesty in the sense we find it necessary until they told someone else all of their story. So this to me is, harkens back to the idea that if we pick up, we have to go back to step one. So many of us pick up and go, well, I'm on four, so I'm just gonna keep working on my step four. Or, you know, I, I made my first amends and I picked up, I'm just gonna start keep making my amends. It's letting us know that if we continue while we're still in the food, we're drunk. You know, and there's something left in that foundation that wasn't sure enough that allowed us to think that eating would be okay. Now that doesn't mean you go back and maybe you have to do every single moment the same. You just need to go up and see what loopholes were you doing? What things were you not fully conceding of so that you can move forward? Does that make sense? So since food is a little different than alcohol, in fact, we have to do it every day. You talked yesterday about you know slips and that, you know, the definition of that. Now you're talking about you know, if we go back, then we start over. Does that mean that once you've identified your trigger foods, and you know, they come into your food plan or action plan, whatever it is, any time you touch any of that food, you are starting over at step one? Yes. Okay. So just to say, because that was a big, that was another prejudice I had to look at, that OA is very different than AA because we have to eat every day. It's very different. Someone confronted me again, that's not true. Alcoholics drink every day. They just don't drink alcohol. I eat every day. I do not eat my binge foods in any form. So it's, you know, it's a little bit more complicated. We have to figure out what those binge foods are. But I'm no different than the alcoholic. A alcoholic doesn't go into a restaurant and think that just because they're drinking soda, they can have you know, a shot of whiskey in it. And now, one of the, 
not an exception, but like for example with me, when I fingered out all my binge foods, I was abstinent. This is not this abstinence, but while you know, a couple years ago. No, I don't know. I don't know when it was. But I started to notice I was putting peanuts in every single meal. I started to put peanuts in my oatmeal. And I'm like, okay, something's going on here. And I had to add that to my abstinence because I couldn't experience the phenomenon of craving with peanuts because it was so clouded with all the other foods. So I put everything down. But if I discover that a food is getting sexy, like we talked about yesterday, and I put it down, it doesn't mean I have to go back to step one because it wasn't part of my definition. Does that make sense? Yeah, so if you're going back to a food you know is a red food, you've picked up, you've made that decision, you succumb to the desire again. But as you go through, if you discover another binge food or another behavior, that's just, that's just, that's just part of your, of your process. But you want to get you want to get moving because remember step one and step two is a conclusion. I'll give you an example. Um, a good friend of mine picked up a month or so ago, and we you know lovingly confronted him, and we took him to an AA thing on Saturday. And he's like, "This is it." Because I, I have to concede. I said, "Okay." After home, or we had the same home group. Um, him and another girl that went into relapse. We sat down for an hour and a half, and we went through chapters, doctor's opinion, through we agnostics, all in one session because they know the book. They were recovered. I said, okay, I want you, we gave them an assignment to call people, you know, ask, my common um, assignment is call people and ask what their favorite paragraph is and discuss it with them. So we sat there and they picked out paragraphs and then me and another recovered person tried to bust them on their BS. So they went back through steps one through two, all in an hour and a half. They went back to their individual sponsors and we're gonna do their step three and then they were gonna go through four, start their inventory again. Because once again, it's not at the, what I find, this is jumping ahead, but one of the things I find very comforting is that people who have recovered, gone through all 12 steps and have picked up again, my experience is when you talk to them, it's pretty obvious. They've stopped doing 10 and 11 and 12. They say they're doing it, but when you ask them practically what does that mean on a daily basis, they don't, you know, it, it was the holidays, I didn't have time to sponsor. Or, you know, I'm just so exhausted and I, I stopped doing my 11th step. Or whatever that was. So it's comforting to me because it lets me know people who actively stay in the work don't pick up. So what I, we have them go through steps one, two, three, start an inventory. And it's not an invent, full inventory again. What was going on in your life that you stopped doing the work? So you might just be doing an inventory on the last two months if you picked up a month ago. Does that make sense? Because you want to look at what's blocking you now that you let build up again and let yourself get blocked so that food became an option. So it doesn't have to be as long of a process, but we have to get back to the why were you not, what were those lurking notions and those reservations that you thought you could pick up and get back on track? Make sense? Okay. So the next two paragraphs I really like because this, this to me also talks about not just um, it talks to me a lot about being what are the consequences if I'm a dry drunk, you know, if I'm someone who's just abstaining. So it says, more than most people, the alcoholic leads a double life. He is very much the actor. To the outer world, he presents the stage character. This is the one he likes his fellows to see. He wants to enjoy a certain reputation, but knows in his heart he doesn't deserve it. 
The inconsistency is made worse by the things he does on sprees. Coming to his senses, he is revolted at certain episodes he vaguely remembers. These memories are a nightmare. He trembles to think someone might have observed him. As fast as he can, he pushes these memories far inside himself. He hopes they will never see the light of day. He is under constant fear and tension. That makes for more drinking. So if I am coming into OA and I'm acting all holy and pious and all this kind of stuff, and then I go out and I screw the rest of the world, I'm not going to be able to do that for long. That's playing the double, the, the double, you know, the, um, the stage character. If I am in OA and I want to enjoy this reputation because I've lost my weight and I want to be really cool and all this stuff, and I'm dying inside, but I, you guys think, oh, I mean, I was your speaker. I can't call you guys with the 10th step. That would be humiliating. That type of behavior is going to cause me to have more fear and tension. And it talks about what he does on his sprees. And I have to think, what, not just sprees with the food, what are my thinking sprees? You know, thinking, you know, my rages because I can't control myself. What about if I'm going out and I'm spending money that I shouldn't be spending because I need some ease and comfort and I'm not gonna pick up? You know, what if I'm out there, you know, flirting with, with men when, I, when I'm in a relationship? You know, what if I am, you know, for, I'm, I'm just a compulsive overeater, maybe I start to drink a little bit because I still need, to, I need that escape somehow. So when they're talking about sprees, I want you to think of not just eating, but what are those things that you are going to for ease and comfort that is not, maybe you're not, and this is my opinion again, but I think we use that word addicted way too much. Addicted is very specific, allergy to the body, obsession of the mind. If you shop too much and say, well, I have to worry about the shopping addiction, I don't know if it, maybe it is, but most of it, I don't think it's an addiction. It's just that you're not getting ease and comfort through the steps and through a relationship with the power, so you're able to escape into shopping. And that eventually might lead you back to the food, but maybe it's not really an addiction as much as it's just a way to get ease and comfort because you're so uncomfortable. So I think sometimes we, we say you're addicted to everything and not. Addiction is very specific. I drank alcoholically for 10 years. I am not an alcoholic. I do not have the allergy of the body when it comes to alcohol. I drank because I needed to get comfortable in college and I felt like I felt so bad. Okay? Well, go do that with Brian. Um, you said this morning that um, you might the part of the day book of, of like normal people can afford anger, but mm -hmm. we can't. But this very paragraph, sort of the dry run. Um, that's an area where I've seen people go, if I have recovery, I'm not allowed to be angry. And so they stuff it, and they put on the mask, and then they start doing all kinds of bad stuff. I, I would say, like, we can't afford resentment, but if we don't actually express our anger, we're, we're going to be in trouble. That's exactly what this is, is saying. Okay. I am a human being. Being recovered doesn't mean I don't get angry and I don't get resentful, I don't get fearful. What it means is that I don't have to stay there anymore. Because I'm always going to be a human being. So when I get, it's kind of funny, you're lucky I'm here today because my, something's wrong with my iPhone and it's not charging. And the, I, I, the iPhone, the Apple Store opened up at 10 a.m. So I have to wait till 5 to go there. I did some 10 and 11 work on it because I'm, I'm, my whole life's in that freaking phone. What am I gonna do? But by, and I'm human. That's, that's what happens when, we, when our phones go wacky doodle. You know, um, 
but I can I don't have to stay there. I was able to do an attend eleven step. I was able to call or go on the internet last night, get an appointment at the Genius Bar at five forty, ask for help from Mary. Is it okay if we go to that store tonight? So I didn't have to stay in that fear. I didn't have to stay in that resentment. And I didn't have to stay at that anger. Because honestly, I probably would have hurt her dog. Because I'm convinced in my head that when I fell on the beach and tripped over her dog, there's sand from the beach in my iPhone, and that's why I can't charge it. That's the insanity I have. But I don't have to stay there. Does that make sense? So this is what's saying here, is if we stay in these resentments, we stay in these fears, we're going to go on sprees, thinking sprees, if we're, if we're sober, and that it's going to lead to constant fear and tension, and that is going to make for more drinking. We are going to drink again. It's warning us. Okay, and then Brian? So it seems to me that we just described about determining what's an addiction and what's a distraction. It will be very important for me as I determine my fearless, because I'm already terrified about taking a look and trying to figure out, because without getting into it, it's like, I like everything. But I don't binge on probably any of it. And so, but it's all a part of 425 pounds. So I'm gonna try to figure out, how do I figure out which is the trigger, which is the whatever? And it seems to me that that's where it lies, is what's just a food that I kind of like that's distracting and what is something that freaking kills me? That, that is true, but I just caution you, don't try to apply step five to step one stuff. Step one is when you have to clearly define your absence, you put it down. This is not talking about the food. This is talking about the human experience of resentments, fears, and anger. Does that make sense? So you have, you have to just define that in step one. And yeah, we might go to other things. I mean, but, I had, but that was step one work for me. If I'm not binging on you know, Snickers bars, which is what I really want, I can eat enough mashed potatoes to create that effect, which is why I always gained weight when I dieted, because I would consume more calories trying to chase a thing. That's, and you see alcoholics who are, who, you know, I'm not having vodka, I'm not having vodka, and they're drinking a case of half a beer, because they need that much beer in order to create the effect they get from a couple shots of vodka. But once again, that's step one stuff. They're talking here about our behavior, our thinking, and if that's inconsistent, I'm going to have to find ease and comfort, and that ease and comfort for me eventually is going to default to the food. I can chase it in other things, and that's not helpful because we're disconnecting from God. That's our ultimate problem is we're disconnected from a power. But just because I'm chasing something, like I said, I, I drank alcoholically, but I did not need to go to AA to stop drinking. I did not have the alcohol. The, I, I'm not an addict in the sense that the book is talking about. People might overspend, but someone who has a real spending addiction, I mean, they're gonna to go to extremes that we wouldn't go to when we're just trying to spend too much money to distract ourselves about the fact that we don't wanna eat. Does that help at all? Yeah, I think it does. Okay. So let's go now to um, page 75. So we've now found this person to take our fifth step. And we sit down for a very long talk it talks about. So once again, just to compare, the big book talks about five, six, seven, eight, all in one day. I've noticed a trend, and like I said, if this trend is working for you, don't change anything. But I've noticed a trend where people will do a couple resentments and then call. A couple resentments and then call. Or they sit in the fourth step for so long that they literally have three eight-hour sessions that they have to give their fifth step away. The big book is, is talking about just doing it all in one shot. 
and, I, and from someone who sponsors, I'll tell you, it's very, my job is as, in your, if you're sponsoring someone, your job is to find the patterns in someone. If you're only hearing a couple of resentments, you can't see patterns. It's very difficult. That's why it's so good to say it all in one shot. I couldn't, you know, after three or four hours, I would not be paying attention to what anyone says. I wouldn't be able to see patterns. I would be just seeing stars in my front of my eyes. You know, um, so it, you sit down and you do your step five. So on that second paragraph on step five is the fifth step promises. So once again, the book is giving us markers of what our experience should be before we move on to the next step. And some of it's fluid, but I, I always have the girls that I work with for the next week after they give their fifth step is use this paragraph as meditation. Ask if this is coming true for you. So I'm just going to read them and kind of tell you what my experience was. It says, we pocket our pride and go to it, illuminating every twist of character, every cranny of the past. 75, the second paragraph. Withholding nothing, we are delighted. I definitely felt lighter after my, because I really expected this person to run out of the room. And she didn't. It was great. Um, we can look the world in the eye. That, to me, was the biggest promise, because I am someone, because of that experience I told you when I was a kid, I, what I would do is stay quiet, figure out what you wanted from me, and I would become that person. And I lied a lot, and I was a chameleon. So I couldn't look you in the eye, because I was trying to remember, who am I supposed to be? What lie did I tell you? How am I supposed to act in front of this person? What am I going to say when they stop talking? I never could just relax and be me. And once I did my fist up, I could look at you, because I really cared what you had to say. So that, to me, was the biggest promise of step five. We can be alone at perfect peace and ease. That chatter in my head started to calm down. Our fears fall from us. We begin to feel the nearness of our creator. We may have had certain spiritual beliefs, but we begin to have a spiritual experience. That was very true for me, was that it stopped being that God that, was, that I used to go to Morristown, New Jersey, at Sunday at 11.15 a.m., to something I had access to more. So it went from belief to experience. So to me, it's kind of like reading the book about riding the bike to actually getting on the bike and knowing what it feels like to ride a bike. Started the transition that way. The feeling that the drink problem has disappeared will often come strongly. For me, that didn't happen until step nine, personally. We feel we are on the broad highway, walking hand in hand with the spirit of the universe. And for me, what that broad highway was, I started to feel a part of OA. I started to feel a part of my family. I, I didn't feel as separate as I always felt like I had to hide who I was. So I started to feel a part of society in general, basically. So this is the promises. So when you do your fifth step, I think it's just good to reflect, are they coming true? If they're not, does it mean any, you know, it might mean you just have to do some more work. Maybe there was something that you're thinking in the back of your head that you should have included in your fourth step and maybe you need to go back. Then it gives us some instructions for the next hour. So it says, returning home, we find a place we can be quiet for an hour, carefully reviewing what we have done. We thank God from the bottom of our heart that we know him better. Taking this book down from our shelf, we turn to the page which contains the 12 steps. Carefully reading the first five proposals, we ask if we've admitted anything. For we are building an arch through which we shall walk a free man. But notice it says free man, not a sober man. Is our work solid so far? Are the stones properly in place? 
Have we skimped on the cement put in the foundation? Have we tried to make mortar without sand? And that mortar without sand I often use in my 11th step as well because I'm asking myself, am I living off the fellowship or am I living off the spiritual experience? Am I living off a past spiritual experience and not a current spiritual experience? Is my program based on tools or is it based on step work? <coughs> Because we need, we, need we need the fellowship, we need the steps, we need all those things. But is it, is it all, you know, and I don't understand all this cement stuff, but if you have too much water, it's too liquidy, not enough, it's going to be cakey. So do we have that proper mix? Okay. We thank him from the bottom of our heart, we know him better. To me, that's the fifth step prayer. And I honestly use it in my tenth step. So why am I, let me finish my phone. Why am I thankful that I know God better? Because the problem was I was blocked, right? So as I'm doing my work, I'm becoming unblocked. So I know God better now because I'm letting go of the things that are between me and God. And I'm thinking about those first five proposals. So you say in that hour, you know, do I fully concede to my innermost self that I'm a compulsive mode leader? Or are there still some reservations with that? Do I truly believe I need a power? Step two. Once again, not defining it, not knowing what it is, but do I believe I need that power? Step three. Am I committed to the decision to go through with the rest of the work? Step four and five. Did I purposely leave anything out? Or has something occurred to me now that I've given my fifth step that I need to discuss further with my sponsor? Okay. You had a question? Yeah. That was kind of what, where I was going back a little bit. How how do you know which resentments to include and which don't? I mean, I, I know if something's, I'm obsessing about something or something's bothering me, you know, often, that would be, you know, included. But what if I think about something every six months that bothers me? Well, if you're, whatever is currently taking up space in your head. So if it's once every six months, I hope you're not sitting in your, in your fifth, fourth step six months until it happens again. So if it's not happening during the time that you're working on it, don't worry about it. You'll hit, you'll hit it in your 10th step. So it's whatever is blocking you right now. What is taking up rent in your head right now? Okay. So after we take that hour, the top is 76. We're now ready for step six and seven. So step six on the top of page 76 says, if you can answer to your satisfaction, all those questions we just talked about, we then look at step six. We have emphasized willingness to be indispensable, and we are now ready to let God remove from us all the things which we have admitted are objectionable. Can he now take them, everyone? If we still cling to something we will not let go, we ask God to help us be willing. So there's your six-step prayer. If I'm clinging to something, I'm asking God to be willing. So I love that word objectionable. Do you have a question? Just a logistical question. So when you're, you're um, doing five, six, seven, and eight um, together, um, and it says go home, take an hour to review the process. So then, um, do you have a person come back the next day, or how do you handle the, that part? Of well, I, because I'm very involved with vision for you, a lot of this is over the phone. Okay. So they're at their house anyways. Um, if it's a local person, what I often do is give them the option to go home, or I, if I have them at my house, I have them sit in my porch and I go walk my dogs for an hour. So it depends. I try not to do it the next day, but there's no fast rule. If I'm working with someone on a different coast, 
or something, then yeah, I'm not gonna have them at 11 o'clock. They go over at 11 and I'm not gonna have them call me back at midnight. But I make sure it's within the first couple hours of the next day. I don't want them sitting in the steps. I want to keep that momentum going. So the objectionable part I really love because, can I finish one thing or do one? Is that if you had asked me before I did my fourth step, what are, Kim, what are some of your assets? I would have told you, well, I'm very independent. I'm very self-reliant. I can pull myself up on my bootstraps. I find out in my fifth step, those are some of my biggest problems. So I don't know what's objectionable until I start looking at steps four and five. That's why we have to get through the work. And this is, again, my opinion, but that word willingness was a big loophole for me. Because I don't ever, I don't have a saying here, well, if I'm not willing, I'm going to pray to be willing. And if I'm not willing to be willing, I'm going to pray to be willing to be willing to be willing. <laughs> my feeling is, and I love this saying, willingness without action is fantasy. So if I'm not taking action, willingness really doesn't matter. You know, if I want to run a 5K, and I get on the treadmill every day, and I, my, my legs are moving, I'm gonna get the benefit whether I'm mad, angry, willing, not willing. So I think sometimes we emphasize willingness so much that we think it's an excuse not to do the work. Do the actions, you'll get the results. I've just noticed for the first time that step six says in its entirely, entirety, we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. I thought it said, made a list of all these defects of character and were entirely ready. And I got so hung up on step six and looking on the internet and how many adjectives can I come up with and which one should be on my list or not. And I'm just realizing like that's not what it asked for at all. And we're gonna actually go over when I finish the step seven prayer because I wanted, once again, my experience, how I complicated some very simple steps. Okay, so let's go on to that next paragraph. It says, when ready, we say something like this. My creator, I am now willing you should have all of me, good and bad. Because once again, I don't know what's good and bad. I'm going to let God sort that out. I am no longer the arbiter of what is a good quality, bad quality, asset, liability. I pray that you now remove from me every single defect of character which stands in the way of my usefulness to you and my fellows. I thought step seven was I had to give up my entire personality, and that scared the crap out of me. No, it's saying every defect of character which blocks me from connecting with you, my fellows, and with God. That's all he's asking of me. I'm just not, he's not asking me not to be Kim. And do I want to be unblocked from my higher power and from you guys? Absolutely. So that's why I'm willing to do this. Grant me strength as I go out from here to do your bidding. And it's going to take strength because I'm going to have to start acting differently. I've had a lot of behaviors that have served me when I was 15, 16, that I'm still doing at 49, that are not helpful. And it's going to be very uncomfortable to learn how to act differently. So I'm going to need strength to do that. And then it says, amen, you've now completed step seven. Now, I don't know if this is an old wives' tale, but I like it. And it says, you notice after the step three prayer, it doesn't say amen. So what I do is I actually use step three and step seven as one prayer. I make a decision to change in step three, and step seven, I've completed the process of changing within myself. Eight and nine is when I go out to others. So four through seven gets me right with myself. So I like to use them as one prayer. Now going back, and I'm sorry, I don't remember your name, but going back to your, Amanda, 
your idea is the idea that I got, I complicated this. I would make a list of all my defects and use a lot of psychology terms because that's my background. And then I would write a list of the opposites and I would practice the opposites. I admitted in step one, I, I'm powerless. What makes me think I can practice the opposites? If I, I know that I should be honest, if I'm dishonest, I know I should be honest. I, why would I, I don't need a power if I can just be honest. So to me, I'm playing God if I'm doing that. So I spend a lot of time, in my opinion, wasting time. If I take fancy words like passive aggressiveness, abandonment issues, all these different words, to me, it all filters down to selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, and frightened. That's, that's my problem. So if I just keep it that simple and ask God to remove it, it's not about me removing it. That's why six and seven, I don't do, it's, to me it's only two paragraphs because I don't do anything. I'm acknowledging that in and of myself, these defects are gonna rule my life. I need a power greater than myself to remove them. I ask God to remove them and then I move on to the next step. Now the irony is most of my, most of my 10 step stuff is actually six and seven. Because being a human being, these defects are going to pop up. And when they pop up, not if, it tells me to watch for them, not work on them. I don't work on my defects. I would have done that if I could. I'm a smart girl. I can't. So most of my 10 step work is actually watching out for these and then turning them over to God. Does that make sense? So this is just for me personally, but spending a lot of time working in six and seven was a lot of just self, selfish behavior on my part, thinking that I could fix myself, and I've proven over and over again I can't. So then we, after we finish six and seven, which usually is like 10 to 15 minutes, I tell them to go home and make your eight-step list, which means every person that you have on your four-step list goes on that list. Doesn't mean you owe an amends, but are you willing to put everybody on that list? And now that you've seen your patterns and how you show up in the world, is there anything additional that you need to put on there? So for example, with me, after I saw my behavior, I realized, you know, when I picked babysitting jobs, it was not about the kids. It was about what was in their pantry. And I stole, I mean, they told me I could eat what I want, but I took a lot of food from people. I mean, I was very, they loved me because I got the kids, if they told me to get the kids to bed at eight, I got them to bed at eight because I wanted to be alone with their pantries. So I had to go back and make a mess. I didn't have no resentment about it, and I didn't have, I didn't have a fear about it. But I saw how I showed up in the world, and I had so I added people on there. So five, six, seven, and eight is all done in one day. Does that make sense to everybody? Anybody have any questions before we go on to step nine? Because that's going to be a little bit more of a conversation. Maureen? Um, going back to the first paragraph on 76, the thing that strikes me is it says, uh, you know, can we, uh, or after you do the prayer, Sorry, second paragraph. Um, asking for the defects to be removed. It's not as if you ask for them and then sit around waiting for weeks to see, well, have they really been removed? You're not sort of doing a, a checklist of like, did my prayer work? Has God removed all these defects before you move on into action? It's right. just simply, you do the prayer, you ask for God to be, for them to be removed, and then you get on with the work rather than Exactly. There's a con. This is not a way, but a concept called less a center that I like because I, I think it goes my Catholicism. 
you know, yes, I, I normally say F you 10, 20 times a day. Today I said it 13. I'm getting better. You know, that, that's the idea. Like we're, God's going to remove them in his time, not our time. And, when, and this is not about being perfect people. This is about finding peace, finding freedom. Any other question? Yes. I'm Nancy Pulsical Reader. Regarding um, the character defects, and I, I definitely understand about listing them and saying, okay, God, here's my list, you know, that I wouldn't want to do that. But what helps me or what I feel like I've been helped is when at least I know, I have an idea of what, okay, I notice that, you know, it's late or I procrastinate or, I mean, I have an idea. And so if I pay attention to what the opposite is, at least, like sometimes I'm doing something and I realize, oh my God, I'm doing this thing and I didn't even realize it. I still think all of it comes from my higher power, and I feel like my higher power is giving me that enlightenment of, look, look, Nancy, you're doing this, you're not doing that. And if it works for you, don't, I'm not telling you to change. They're just the way that I see the big book saying is we don't work on our defects. You know, so I, gotta, I, I kind of feel like I block out God if I tell God what to do. So if I'm saying, God, I'm going to practice being on time, that's kind of blocking God out. And procrastination, let's think about it. What's procrastination? I'm selfish. I want to do it in my time. You know, fearful. Maybe I'm fearful of doing whatever I'm doing, so I'm going to keep putting it off. I'm dishonest. You know, I know that I had to be there at 5 o'clock, but I, was, I just was doing what I wanted to do. So I think every defect that we put down really can be filtered down. And just to me, it, it is a way to not waste time. I just know that I'm selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, and frightened. And it just keeps it a lot simpler for me. And I, Because like I said, me personally, I can complicate anything. If what you're doing is working and you have freedom from what you're doing, don't change anything. Don't change <coughs> okay? So now we're going to get into step nine. And I'm just going to kind of cherry pick this as well. I see four different warnings in here. So we're going to go over the warnings first. So on 76, the next paragraph, which we haven't read, now we need more action. Do you see that, the third paragraph? The last sentence. Remember, it was agreed at the beginning we would go to any lengths for victory over alcohol. If we go to page 77, that last paragraph under new condition, the second sentence, simply we tell him we will never get over drinking until we've done our utmost to straighten out the past. Last paragraph. 72 to 77. The last paragraph, it's actually four lines up from the top if you want to look at it that way. Simply we tell him we will never get over drinking until we've done our utmost to straighten out the past. Then we go to page 78. That second full paragraph, most alcoholics owe money. The last sentence in that paragraph. We must lose our fear of creditors no matter how far we have to go for we are liable to drink if we are afraid to face them. And the last one that I see is on page 79, that first full paragraph, although these reparations take innumerable forms, there are some general principles which we have guiding here comes the warning, reminding ourselves that we've decided to go to any lengths to find a spiritual experience. Now here comes a prayer. We ask that we be given the strength and direction to do the right thing. 
79, the top paragraph, although these reparations take innumerable forms, that second sentence, the first part is a warning and the second part is a prayer. Anytime I see the word ask, I circle it because that's a prayer. Okay, so just to kind of once again look at my old ideas about amends. My personal experience, again, is that a lot of people have done a lot of damage making amends before they did steps one through eight. They just run out and say, oh, you know, I'm sorry I cheated on, on your husband. Or I'm sorry that I stole money from you without doing the work. So I had to look at what's the difference between an apology and an amends. Because I always apologize. I can knock into a piece of furniture and I'm going to apologize to it. So an apology is an excuse for behavior. And what I would do is I would apologize. Mom, I'm so sorry that I, you know, I, 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 you know, I talk back to you. And the next day I would do the same thing. My apologies meant nothing. And again, specifically for me, I've been in and out of LA many times. Why would they believe this time is any different? Now on the men's, the definition is to change for the better, to remove or correct faults, reparation or compensation for damage. That's a lot different than an apology. Could you read it again, please? Sure. Does it say that here? No, it's just, it's Mr. Webster told me. <laughs> to change for the better, to remove or correct faults, reparation or compensation for damage. You say to, to remove or correct faults? Yes. This is all from Webster's Dictionary, too. I just, I just looked it up. There's a dictionary in the back of the book. Oh, is there? There's a dictionary in the back of your book. Reparation or what? Or compensation for damage. Cool. That's got a cool book. Well, how is that because you said we don't put ourselves, we don't do the to do list to try to get some of these defects of character with us? To change for the better, to remove the correct faults, preparation. It seems to me that kind of the end is ridiculous. Well, what, what you're going to do, that's, that's our goal. I just want to make that's our goal. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at that fourth column. What harm did we cause? And we're going to correct that harm. So that's what we, and then what we're going to do is we're going to tell them how we're going to make it right. And then we're not going to do that behavior anymore. Once again, this is more, this is my opinion, but in the big book, it does not say living amends. What I have found for myself was living amends was I'm too embarrassed to make an apology. Therefore, I'm just going to be a better person. <laughs> and I think to myself, I had, you know, I told you I was the youngest of cousins, and cousins would be very mean to me. And then a couple months later, they would come back, and they would, it was like they never even said anything nasty. They would just act like nothing, no big deal happened. And that so pissed me off. And yet, isn't that what I'm doing to other people when I say I'm going to make a living amends to you? I hurt you. I caused you damage in some way, financially, spiritually, emotionally, and I'm just going to pretend it never happened and just be nice to you now. Now, my belief on the other end is every amends is a living amends because I'm saying I'm not going to do it again. I'm going to demonstrate through my behavior that that's not the person I am anymore. So just a twist on that with living amends, yes? 
if I'm hearing you, there's, it sounds like there's a distinction between I'm making a decision that I'm not going to be behavior anymore, but that's very different than asking God to remove a character defect. Right. Which, so I don't work on making my defects go away, but I do have <coughs> responsibility for changing my behavior. Right, so for example, if I do disrespect my mother in front of the family, I say, I am sorry for the way I treated you. That is not, that was not right for me to belittle you in front of your family. And I am making a commitment to you that I will not do that anymore. In and of myself, I can't do that. I'm going to do that with God's help, but I'm letting her, that person know how this is going to change. Okay? So just to kind of give a, a little, and this is once again, it's just something I was taught. So they, the person talks about the four A's of how an amends is supposed to look. I'm getting in that fourth column and I'm looking at the harm that I caused. So the first thing I'm going to do is admit I am wrong. Big thing for me. I'm going to ask you to forgive me. I'm going to ask what I can do to make it right. And I'm going to ask, is there anything else I need to know? Now that last one I just basically do with people I have intimate relations with. I'm not, if I, you know, stole money, um, you know, from a grocery store and I'm paying them back money, I'm not going to ask them, is there anything else I need to know? But I have to tell you, for me personally, that was some of them, I learned more because I'm so selfish and self-centered, I don't even know how I affect people. So when I went to my father and made amends and I said to him, is there anything else I need to know? I was shocked. I lived with my parents until I was 27. I was shocked to find out he was afraid he was going to have to support me the rest of his life. Because I couldn't make a living. You know, that he was afraid I wouldn't get a job out of high school, I mean, out of college, because I looked pregnant. I had no idea. That when I became believing that he was following me to the bathroom because he was afraid I was going to be throwing up again. When I asked my mother, is there anything else I need to know? I was shocked how much she was, how angry she was because if there was a wedding and I bought a dress and it doesn't fit, I just wouldn't show up to the wedding and she was left making excuses for me. I thought my actions that were hurting were things that I did. I found out a lot of my harm was things that I didn't do. Not showing up, not being dependable, not being reliable. And I wouldn't have known that if I didn't say, is there anything else I need to know? But that goes again, that's just me, and that's you know, something I do with people that I have close relationships with. So I have to get clear on what my harm is. So I'm just going to give you a couple examples. It's 2 o'clock now, so I'll do like maybe like another 10 minutes, and then we'll take a break. Can I just ask quickly, the last part about anything else I need to know, I assume it would be important to just listen and not respond, not try to... You know, go back into steps one, two, and three, like... Defend. Just leave it. At least for me, the big thing is do not defend my behavior. Let them talk. So, for example, one of the ones I had a hard time with was I was very passive-aggressive. So I'm not going to go up to someone and say, I'm sorry I called you a bitch behind your back all these years. Like, how was I going to make that right, you know? So one specifically... Um, was a, a guy that I was friends with. We actually, we dated, and we were friends afterwards, and he got a new girlfriend, and I couldn't stand her. And none of my friends could stand her. And I used to just trash her behind her back. 
And I had to look at where was I selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, frightened. Well, even though I didn't want to date this guy, I was pretty pissed off he found a girlfriend and I was still single. And I was really lonely and angry about it. So the next time my friends started trashing her, I said, listen guys, I just have to tell you, I can't participate in this anymore. I realize my loneliness and my anger that I haven't found someone, I'm taking out on Karen, and that's just not right. I'm like, I won't do it anymore. Because the harm was the gossiping that who I was gossiping with. Now the other part was, I had to go up to Karen and I had to tell her, I mean, compliment her. And it couldn't be you have nice shoes. I had to really think about what, you know, something I liked about her. And it took me four or five times. And finally this peace came over me. And I went up to her and I said, Karen, I just want to thank you for so how happy you made my friend. I have never seen Dennis as happy as he's been with you. And I meant it. And they're married now, have kids, and I'm probably you know closest to Karen out of all of our friends. Because I went through this process and I saw what my harm was. Um, I'll give you another example. Um, and this is not me, that's just from a seat in AACD, but it just so hit me. No, it's not she has It's a one-time phone call I got from a girl that she called me up and she said, I have to put everyone on my eight-step list. And I'm like, yeah. And she's like, well, I was raped in college by like, someone I knew. You're telling me I have to go back and apologize to my rapist? And I'm like, no, where was your harm? And she looked at it and her harm was that she never told anybody, that she never made a police report. She didn't want to be seen as a victim because the guy was a popular athlete and she didn't want to be seen that way. And the fear that she had carried is of other women were being violated and she had stayed quiet and other, other women were getting hurt. So I said, okay, let's get quiet. How can you write that wrong? And after a couple minutes of being quiet, she said, I think I have it. I said, what? She's like, I live next to a local university. I'm gonna call them and see if they have a rape, if they have a rape crisis center. And I'm gonna help give a voice to a woman when I didn't have a voice when I was that age. I mean, that's huge. That's huge. You know, when we talk about not causing harm as well, I had a sponsee that, um, I told you I had a lot of sponsees that were Orthodox Jewish, and this woman had a, a bunch of kids. Um, they have a lot of children. And um, this eight-year-old was really misbehaving, and she was constantly yelling at him and stuff. And she got to where she was selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, and frightened. And in the Orthodox Jewish community, a lot of your identity is who you are as a mother. And she really saw that her anger was not at what her child was doing, but how her child was making her look in her community. So we said, he's eight years old, you're not gonna go and explain that to an eight year old. So she said, well, for two weeks, I want you three times a day to tell, find out when that, look for when that child is doing something right and compliment him. And she called me back a couple weeks later crying. And she said, I can't even tell you how my son is changing behind my eye, before my eyes. He just wanted my attention. And she said, I'm doing this the rest of my life. I have an, another, um, with my brother, when I looked at my brother, this is, I bought this blonde hair. I know it's shocking. But um, I was so angry that I had brown hair and brown eyes and my brother had blonde hair and blue eyes. It just was not fair. And he never had a weight problem and he got girlfriends easily and I just couldn't stand him. I just withheld any compliments, any love because I was so seething that he got the genes that I wish I had gotten. So what was my amends? Not to tell him I hated him, 
for all those years, but I called him up and I told him what a wonderful husband he is and a wonderful father and how proud I am of all the things that he's done and that I would want him as a friend even if he wasn't my brother. Because that's righting the wrong and making sure that on an ongoing basis I'm acknowledging his accomplishments without thinking that it's a reflection on me being a loser. Does that make sense? Um, yes. I'm making an amends by writing the wrong of telling him all, of giving him all the stuff that I, that I withheld from him. I'm not going to inflict harm on somebody by telling him I didn't like them. So that's, I had to understand what the harm was. For me, just to say, you know, just not, just to uh, never acknowledge those things and just say, okay, I'm just going to be nice to my brother now, first of all, it would really confuse him because I, you know, I wouldn't talk to him a lot. But I had to understand what, what their harm was. That's why, I said, that's why I believe every amends is a living amends, because I'm now going to change my behavior. But I need to acknowledge the wrongs that were done. Make sense? This is one I heard from an AACD. This is, I love this. A gentleman, he, brilliant man, he washed windows by day, and he uh, robbed houses by night. So he, so he could look in their windows, see if anyone had anything worth stealing, and then go back and rob them. So he robbed 20 houses in this in this neighborhood, and he his sponsor told him, you have to go to each house, you have to knock on the door, say, did you live here in 1984, in April, where you robbed? I'm the man who did it, and I'm here to make it right. And he got 18 out of the 20. And he said, well, isn't that good enough? And he said, did you rob all 20? Then you gotta do all 20. So finally, this older man answers the door, gave him a speech, did you live here in 1984? You know, did you, uh, were you robbed? And I'm the one who did it. And the guy got so excited. And he invited him in and called over his wife. And he goes, okay, what did you do over here? And he goes, well, I remember correctly. I think I tore down a picture because I thought there might be a safe behind it. And he's asking these questions and they sat down. And he said, okay, I'm here to make it right. And he slipped in an envelope with some money. And the older man said, no, 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 you don't owe us anything. The insurance, the insurance handle it, don't worry about it. He's like, no, 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 you don't understand. I'm here to make it right. And the guy looked at him and he goes, you know, you don't understand. Until this moment, we thought our son did it. Oh, oh my gosh. So I think that we don't know how we're, what this amends is going to be. We don't know how we're going to affect it. I've heard so many stories where people don't find people. And then five years later, when they find them, that their brother is an alcoholic and needs help. And if they would have made the amends five years earlier, they wouldn't have been able to help. So we, all we have to do is do the work, ask God into it, and be willing, and God will present that in front of us. I had that happen to me, a girl that I went to grammar school through high school, and we were friends in college. I was supposed to be in her wedding party, and I wasn't even invited to the wedding by the end. I was a bratty, bratty girl. And I prayed about it, and I didn't know how to find her, and I was ready. And then one day, I just ran into her in the parking lot, and I was able to make an amends to her. So I stand, that, that college roommate, I was saying, but I've never found her. I'm so selfish, I'm not even sure how to spell her last name. <laughs> and finally, someone said to me, well, why don't you contact the college? And I contacted the college very recently, and they have her on there, um, but they will not give me her information because it's personal. But they said, 
you know, we can contact her. So I left a message that, you know, please let her know that her college roommate would like to reach out to her and apologize for how she behaved when they were roommates. I've never heard from her, but I made the attempt. And I'll share one last one um, beforehand. And this is, not, this is actually from the receiving end. I, I work with a woman whose daughter's an alcoholic and I've kind of helped her out you know, with different things. And she came to me, I think it was in June, and she was shaking and she said, Kim, my daughter said she's at step nine. She's only been working with a sponsor since March. Could that be possible? And I'm like, yeah, absolutely. I'm like, what's wrong, Dee? And she showed me this post-it. And it said, I'm on my ninth step. I want to make amends to you. And I said, okay. I said, she's like, well, I don't want to. I said, well, you don't have to. She's made her attempt. I said, why don't you want to talk to her? And she's like, Kim, it's the 26th. And I'm like, yeah? She goes, she probably wants rent. <laughs> but... If you could see the pain on her face, what we do to the people in our lives. She was terrified of letting her daughter back in because all she's ever wanted from her was money. So I assured her that her daughter made the attempt. Whether she ever decides to receive it really isn't going to affect her sobriety. But it just was a reminder to me of how I inflict people and how I, you know, how the people in my life suffer from compulsive overeating even though they never completely compulsively overeat. Does that make sense? So right now it's 2.10. So we're gonna, well, let me just turn off the recording.